0: This is
1: the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Bill Barr, the attorney general, the guy that William Sapphire back in the 90s used to refer to as cover up General Barr because he helped cover up the Iraq Gate scandal. It was the illegal sale of weapons of mass destruction by George Herbert Walker Bush to Saddam Hussein. And he helped cover up the Iran-Contra scandal by pardoning or advising Bush to pardon Casper Weinberger, Ollie North, and three other people, which caused Lawrence Walsh, the prosecutor, the special prosecutor, to say, this is a complete cover-up and you've completely blown my case against Bush and Reagan, which is exactly what happened and exactly what's going on. So I'll just give you the short version of what's going on in Congress right now. It's all over the TVs, but it's really a rather disheartening show. Jerry Nadler, being a lawyer and being Jerry Nadler, is reading boring monologues and commentaries about how Bill Barr is using the Justice Department to help Donald Trump politically. And Jim Jordan, his opponent on the Republican side, who is a high school gym teacher, has been jumping up and down and yelling and screaming and doing all his theatric stuff, not sounding at all like a lawyer, and frankly sounding a hell of a lot more convincing. Jim Jordan also played a two, three, four minute God only knows how long video of, you know, evil black people breaking into a store and stealing things and uh, evil protesters in Portland uh, trying to pull down a chain link fence around the federal building. Turns out that the rules of the House of Representatives require 48 hours notice to the other side if you're going to present visual video evidence. Jim Jordan didn't do that. He wanted to catch Jerry Nadler and the Democrats unprepared. You know, again, more evidence of what I've been saying for a long time. The Republicans have no interest in playing by the rules. They don't give a damn about the rules. They only care about power. They only care about winning. The truth doesn't matter. The rules don't matter. How things are supposed to function in a democracy doesn't matter. And Jim Jordan proved that this morning. And then, of course, Bill Barr is saying, well, everything I do is to support the rule of law. And John Lewis was a great man. And, you know, they're not going to catch Bill Barr saying, oh, yeah, I'm a stooge and a lackey. I did it for George Herbert Walker Bush, and I'm doing it now for Trump. He's not going to say that. You know, it's just... It's so frustrating. (laughs) It's so damn frustrating. But, you know, it is what it is. Jerry Nadler is doing the best he can. He's doing what he thinks is right. The Democrats are doing it by the rules, talking about the law, talking about what's right for America. The Republicans are yelling and screaming about, oh, my God, you know, chaos in the streets. We need to bring in the Gestapo. And there you go. So anyhow, that's what's happening in the House of Representatives. Both sides are presenting their cases, and what's going to happen is when it's all done, the Republicans are going to declare victory, the Democrats will declare victory, the American people will be bamboozled, or, I don't know, we'll see, I suppose, with the polls. But this is not a good situation. I wanted to talk about a couple of things. You know, the first point I wanted to make, you know, without, God forbid, echoing Bill Barr, Bill Barr, started out by saying that John Lewis is a great American and, by the way, he never advocated violence, which is, to the best of my knowledge, true. And I wanted to point to the wall of moms and the wall of dads and the wall of veterans and, frankly, before that, the wall of people supporting Black Lives Matter and and just the whole idea that Black Lives Matter in the United States or should matter in the United States. Clearly, as of this moment, Black lives do not matter as much in the United States as white lives, whether it has to do with policing, whether it has to do with employment, whether it has to do with lending and financial practices, whether it has to do with political or financial power. The simple reality right now is that black and brown and take it out of color, African-American, Hispanic, Native American, Asian lives in this country, and frankly, Muslim lives, regardless of ethnicity, don't matter as much as white Christian, in particular, males matter. And let's just like, you know, stipulate that. Let's just put that on the table. But the extraordinary thing that made John Lewis such a hero, and, you know, when I look at the wall of moms and the wall of dads and whatnot, and I think, you know, I could have been down there. But, you know, being an old man, I'd I'm really reluctant to die of coronavirus. And, you know, it's a really, this is a really tough decision that every person has to make. You know, how do we, how do I personally participate in waking people up? And the choice I've made for myself is that my writing and this show, the work, the other work that I do is that's my, my contribution for what it's worth. But other people have chosen to put their bodies on the line. And I really want to honor that. The people who have chosen to peacefully put their bodies on the line. Because that's the hardest work. It's absolutely the hardest work. So number one, I, I just want to, to note that, that when John Lewis, he didn't just like, hey, let's show up for a demonstration or a riot. It was, let's find those places where we are most likely to get beat up and injured, that can be captured on camera, this was a very intentional strategy, that can get captured on camera so that the majority of America can see the horrors of institutional and police practiced racism in the United States. He was willing to put his, literally his life on the line for that. He had more courage than frankly I have I find that so worthy of honoring. It's just an extraordinary thing. So here we go. I am not quoting protesters in this story I'm about to tell you. I'm not quoting left-wing media sources. I'm not quoting some guy who was on the street who saw something and said something. I am quoting the chief of police of Richmond, Virginia, and the mayor of Richmond, Virginia. There was a Black Lives Matter protest that turned violent over the weekend. Police had to step in. This was not one of Trump's, hey, let's bring the Border Patrol in to beat up people. This was the local police department. And they arrested six people. But let me just share with you what the mayor and the chief of police said. This is LeVar Stoney, who is the mayor of Richmond. He said, and I quote There were white supremacists marching under the banner of Black Lives Matter, an attempt to undermine an otherwise overwhelmingly peaceful movement towards social justice. We've spoken on many occasions about those who've chosen a more violent route to express their discontent and what that does for the overall movement towards social justice. That was the mayor. This is the chief of police. Quote, we have identified some individuals who have been seen with the Boogaloo Boys and some Antifa groups around the area, said Richmond Police Chief Gerald Smith on Sunday. The majority of those individuals who were there were Caucasian. This was not a Black Lives Matter protest. It was billed as one. The Boogaloo Boys were saying it was one. Trump and this whole right-wing neo-Nazi movement that has erupted all across the United States, springing out of all the years of fear and hate that the NRA has sown, that the John Birch Society has sown, that right-wing extremists have sown, that the Tea Party organizers, FreedomWorks, and some of these other right-wing groups, scaring people, oh, Democrats are going to have death panels and they're going to kill you, uh, you know, with Obamacare, et cetera, et cetera. They have sown this fear and all of that fear has animated white men across the United States and in many cases presumably unemployed now white men who are doubly pissed off because they've lost their jobs. And they're reading this stuff on Facebook. Facebook is the main cesspool where this thing is being amplified and echoing you know, with the blessing of Facebook's most senior management and some of its right-wingers. Yeah, they pull down some of the more visible stuff, but it's all over Facebook. And they have been successfully manipulated, these fearful white men, into believing that somehow America will cease to exist as a country. If Democrats come into power, if Donald Trump doesn't remain in the White House, You know, this is the Donald Trump who is making his junk in China and selling it using his campaign, who's transferring millions and millions of dollars out of his campaign into his own pocket. This is this grifter who is, he said over the weekend that his main focus has to be on refurbishing the FBI building. Why is that? Well, the FBI wants to move their headquarters to Virginia, you know, where the NSA is and where everybody else is. But Trump doesn't want them to leave that building because then... Marriott could build a hotel right across the street from his hotel because, you know, well it's a block down, but basically right across the street from the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., which is a violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution to begin with. This grifter using raw, naked racism appeals to racism. And he's been doing this since 2015 when he first announced he was running for president. Hell, he's been doing this since the 1980s or 90s when he went after the Central Park Five. This grifter has succeeded in convincing these white men that they have to get out there with guns in order to defend what? White supremacy? Some of them, certainly that's definitely the case. There's a story on, I believe it's a raw story, it might be Daily Coast about a guy in one particular very, very, you know, right-wing town who stood at a street corner with the Black Lives Matter sign and simply recorded the people driving by, yelling the N-word at him, yelling all kinds of stuff at him, basically verbally abusing him, you know, yay, white power, that kind of stuff, all going on. So there's that. There's economic insecurity that Trump is playing on. Now there's, you know, fear of the virus that Trump is playing on. And he's got this whole right-wing echo chamber behind him promoting this. And Fox News every night, oh, my God, Portland is on fire. The city is in flames. It's, a chaos. it's chaos. There are terrorists. It's Antifa. The anti-fascist terrorists. The headline over at uh, The Guardian, anti-fascists linked to zero murders in the U.S. in 25 years. But right-wing hate groups, lots and lots of murders. Gee. Why would Trump not know that? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Obviously, he does know that. He's just choosing to tell us that, you know, the, the sky is green and uh, you know, the sun doesn't come up. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that the Second Amendment was written to protect the slave patrols in South Carolina and Georgia back in the day? It's in my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Check it out. Thanks so much. Tom Hartman here with you. So uh, Jennifer Christensen, and I'm not sure if I'm mispronouncing her name, but it's spelled sort of like that, is a 37-year-old mother and attorney here in Portland. She was part of the Wall of Moms. She has a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old. And she talked with Heavy, Heavy.com, you know, which is one of these new news sites, progressive news site, in a video posted by Portland journalist Sergio Olmos, essentially her story, you can see her story playing out. An officer, she's about five feet tall. She said she was pushed by an officer who was around 6'2", and then she heard the woman right to her left, the woman standing next to her, scream and then say that the officer had just slammed her breast with a club, had just hit her, beaten her in the breast. So Christensen said, this is from heavy.com, Christensen said that she then used her arm that was free to put herself between the woman who just had had her breast smashed, the cop was getting ready to hit her again, and the officer. I shouldn't call these guys cops. They're not cops. They're goons. She said if he swung again, she wanted it to be her arm that would be hit, not the other woman's breast. So they pulled her out of the line and arrested her. And they took her to into the federal building. And she said, this is what she told. She had bruises, uh, you know, all across her chest. She did. She had been hit also. And she said, before we go in, this is going into the building. Before we go in, he pushes me up against the wall, facing the wall, and uses his left hand to cup my right breast, and his right hand to flip up my skirt and grab my right butt cheek. She said the thought went through her head, Is this the day I get raped against the building? Christensen said, again, reading from this heavy article by Tom Cleary, Christensen said she was taken into the federal building, was not told her charges, and was not told that she was under arrest. They never read her her rights. She said that they handcuffed her behind her back and took her into an elevator. Inside the elevator, she was pushed into a corner by a federal officer. Christensen said there were four officers in the elevator with her. One told her to stop resisting. And she said back, I'm 100 pounds, I'm not resisting. And then he yelled, shut up at her. And it goes on from there. I mean, you can read the story over at heavy.com. Portland mom says she was groped and assaulted by feds during protest arrest. It's pretty straightforward stuff. But this is what's going on. And this is one of the reasons why people who are operating under the color of law, people who say that they have the authority, that we the people from the days of the Constitutional Convention to today, that we the people have given them the right and authority to use force and violence against us in order to protect us. But the caveat that we have always put on that is that, but if they abuse that privilege, if they abuse that power, we can hold them individually responsible. But there is no possibility of holding the officer who groped this woman individually responsible because he had no name badge. He had no number. There was no identifying insignia. There's no way for her to say, yeah, that's the guy. This is so breathtakingly un-American. This is foundational to how tyranny works. This is foundational. This is the core stuff of authoritarian governance. This is the core stuff of essentially dictatorship. This is how governments that do not want to be held accountable by their people, yet claim that they're drawing their authority from the people. And they make that claim by holding sham elections. And you see this all around the world. You see it, you see it now in the Philippines. You see it now in, in Brazil. You see it now in the United States. Sham elections. State after state where, for example, the majority of the people voted for Democrats in Wisconsin. And yet the Republicans control their legislature. And it's not just Wisconsin. It's, that's true of at least a half a dozen or a dozen states. The majority of Americans have not elected a Republican president since 1988. And then it took the Willie Horton ads to make it happen. So the hallmark of an authoritarian regime, which is what the Republican Party has become since the 1980s, is this, an absolute lack of accountability. Bill Barr saying, no, I'm not going to give you access to the Mueller report, even though it was written with the intention of making it public. No, we're not going to hold anybody accountable. You're not going to be able to even know who just tried to rape you under the pretense of being a police officer. You can't even know. Sorry. That is not democracy. That is not You're America. to the Tom Hartman program. How long is America going to continue to tolerate this from the Republican Party? Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Jude in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Jude, you were at the protest in Portland this weekend. We
3: sure. spoke last Monday, and I ended up going down Tuesday again because I just felt the the need to go down and be present to that. And there were about a thousand people that day. And wherever I go, I travel with boots and flowers. I represent peace for many women around oh, the yeah. country. But what I want to bring up is, I on Saturday night there must have been there was an estimated 5,000 people that were present across from the federal building. It's a slow evolution. When I got there, it's around 7 o'clock, and across the street there's the park, which still does not have any barriers. But it's filled with people, you know, having barbecues, and you'd never know. I mean, the contrast, looking at the federal building, which still has the barriers up and all the graffiti and such, is really quite mind-boggling. But as the evening progressed... This group, I wasn't present when the moms came in because the groups separated and part went down to the Marriott, where I am assuming that they believed that uh, some of the federal agents or whoever they were were staying there. And they proceeded to have this enormous chant around the Marriott Hotel. And afterwards, people started filtering out, and we went back towards the Justice Center, which is right next to the federal building. It was extraordinary, Tom, the amount of energy and focus and dedication of these people. I don't know how I can articulate into words what the nation really needs to do to support Portland right now. But as it began to progress, there they stood, this massive group of people, and drums began. And the drumming almost sounds like um, warrior drums, not challenging, but uh, the presence, which I understand why Trump and all of them are probably really concerned about the consciousness of America, because people are awake. Well, it was probably a little after midnight, which was my intention to stay longer each time, and I'm down there by myself, but I had not one single sense of fear or trepidation about any of those people that I was around. I wove in and out of them, and I'm extremely sure So by the time we got back to the federal building, I was probably 10 layers of people standing right up on the sidewalk across from the federal building because they were getting ready to just be present. A young fellow came up, and he said, you know, he said, you need to step back. He said, they're going to start dispersing, and he said, you're not prepared for it. So I moved back a little bit, and before I knew it, I don't know if it was pepper spray, or, but there was an explosion of things going on, and that substance is so difficult. You know, I couldn't quite catch my breath, and as I wove my way, all these people were walking. No one was fearful. No one was running. But I was surrounded by a a group of probably individuals around 30 or so that had their normal uh, saline bottles, you know, to spray your eyes, and stood and talked with me and gave me water to flush my mouth out with. And Tom, the fellow, takes off his goggles to give them to me. there's so much more than what's being revealed and i have deep gratitude for those people down in portland and i'll be returning again and hopefully i can stand in the front with boots and flowers to be present for the women and the veterans jude keep
1: keep calling and giving us updates thank you so much it's great to hear from eric in erie pennsylvania hey eric what's on your mind
4: Hey, good afternoon, Tom. I'd just like to offer a little bit of wisdom to folks out there in those cities where there is a federal occupying force and they're trying to have peaceful protests and are are being uh, interloped upon. There's something that an individual or a few individuals can do in dealing with criminality and civil liability where brutality is committed. Have an individual or few that are designated as image gatherers. You can exist on the periphery or behind the crowd. You can move in the shadows and shoot faces and unique characteristics on a long lens. Yeah, these guys
1: are all wearing gas masks. You can't see their faces, Eric.
4: Well, they're taking them off to take a drink and wipe sweat. That's why this person has to be independent of the group, kind of a reconnaissance scout that moves around, follows the troops, not the protesters. And you catch them doing things like, you know, food and drink, changing gear, they'll take gloves off, yeah. roll sleeves, you can get tattoos, faces, and then follow them to the vehicles they go to after they're done with being in their unmarked rental cars. It's slow and arduous, but it is indeed the best kind of fact-gathering you can do, and then these people yeah. can be held to account later. There's no other way to have faceless, masked, you know, storm-trooping brown shirts in your town. So they got
1: it. Yeah, accountability is a really, really, really big thing. And, you know, I'm not suggesting we should be doxing people, but we do need to know who they are and where they came from and all that kind of thing. Thank you, Eric. Paul in Illinois. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind?
5: Hey, Tom, how are you? I heard you talking about these rubber bullets. Now, I don't think that American people understand what a rubber bullet is. A rubber bullet is about an inch and a quarter in diameter. It's solid rubber. And it's about five inches long. And the reason that I know about it, I was born and brought up with the Troubles in Belfast. And they actually banned the use of these rubber bullets. Because when you fire them, you're supposed to hit the ground before it hits the person. That's the law of engagement when you fire a rubber bullet. You hit the ground in front of the rioters and that takes a sting out of it so it doesn't kill you. But, I mean, it was a young girl, nine years of age, coming from the shop from our mother's centre. She was hit by a rubber bullet and killed stone dead right in the spot, Tom. These things mm. are lethal. And then, what the British Army used to do to them, they would hollow them out, because they're solid rubber, they would hollow, sit in their barracks at night, hollow them out, and put 2D batteries inside and keep it back together. So when they mm. fired this thing, you were being hit by two D batteries, not a rubber bullet. Wow. Wow. So that's, wow. that's so
1: we've had five, under- I believe, five people, including two or three journalists who have been blinded in one eye by these so-called rubber bullets. I prefer to call them 40 millimeter munitions. And the ones that they're using now in the United States actually have metal on the inside and they're coated with hard plastic. They don't even make them out of rubber anymore. The ones that they're using here right uh, now, Paul.
5: They were called the plastic bullet at home, Tom. We had two, we had yeah. a plastic bullet and a rubber bullet. They're two different yeah. munitions they use to yeah. fire, but- But they can they kill, I mean, they, they,
1: they do kill about 1% of the time and they maim people 18% of the time, cause permanent Absolutely. lifelong injury. And you're They're not lethal. supposed to shoot these things above the waist, as you point out. I didn't know about the shoot against the ground thing. That may be unique to Ireland, but here in the United States, you're supposed to not shoot above the waist. And they have been intentionally targeting people's heads. I mean, it's just all over the place. It's like.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. Tom. And if American people really, really honestly knew what the damage these things can do and the size of them, I just think that might help them understand the lethal nets of these things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Paul, thank you for the call. Jonathan in
6: Portland. Hey, Jonathan, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm watching what's going on downtown online on Twitch and I wanted to just make people aware of that because I find I live very close to downtown. I hear the explosions and I can watch online see them deploying their tear gas and their weapons and their flashbang grenades and then hear the delayed sound about 2 minutes later. My friends are calling me from all over the country and wondering what's going on and frankly I'm a little embarrassed simply because even I am somewhat unaware. I read the news accounting in the Oregonian, it was really pathetic. It was just scant milk toast about what happened. I watched in horror as this young woman was slammed to the ground. Her face was bloodied. There were five soldiers standing on her. She was screaming, "I can't breathe." There was an older woman trying to come over and get her name and help her. There are news accounts there of these burning tear gas projectiles that go into tents, into medics' tents, and to cars that are threatening to cause fires. Mm -hmm. You really have to watch the unedited... Twitch feeds and the reporters that are down there, these, I don't know if they're citizen reporters or guerrilla reporters or what, but they're really astonishing, because everything is so highly edited and censored. Um, there was nothing on the local radio or TV all day. There's, you know, uh, sports news. I mean, it's, it's absolutely pathetic. It's but, all been sanitized,
1: well, Jonathan, because none of the news editors want to be accused of inciting a riot. That's, well, that's...
6: They wouldn't be inciting a riot. Yeah. At all.
1: I still recall the day that federal agents, when I was 17 years old, came to the radio station where I worked, WITL in Lansing, Michigan, and told us that we should not report on a bunch of tax protesters that they were arresting because they didn't want the protest to go viral, essentially. I mean, I just have to believe that that's going on now. Coming up on the science revolution, it's amazing cleaner air during the pandemic is proving the benefits of a decarbonized economy. Dr. Jay Family Eddy is here on how the number of people harmed by floods will double worldwide by 2030. In Geeky Science, don't miss the seven things that happen when you stop eating meat or eat less meat during this pandemic. And our fact of the week is about plummeting wildlife and extinctions. Check out the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. You're listening to Tom Hartman. David in Tyler, Texas. Hey, David, it says here you were uh, at, well, just tell me the story.
2: Yes, Tyler is in Smith County, the county seat of Smith County. Our, Our congressman is a guy I think the whole world knows about now, or at least the United States, is Louis Gohmert. So the Democrats have a fellow named Hank Gilbert that was is running against him this time, and had we scheduled an event, they you got to reserve the town square to do any kind of presence there, and so we were all going to show up at two o'clock, and I went early, and when I got there, now I'm hearing that they had scheduled another group as well. It was almost like a planned maybe confrontation that they were counting on. So there were people filming, and there's a TV station that overlooked the square. And got there, and I've never seen so many automatic weapons in my life.
1: Was this the (laughs) counter-protesters? Was that, you know, a bunch of right-wingers who showed up to counter-protest against your Democratic candidate?
2: Exactly. And we were overwhelmed there were a lot of them and they you know they didn't look like the militia in uh, oregon and nobody had a hunting weapon they were all ak-47s or something like that and so we were just surrounded at everything you know this democratic group there's a lot of older people there and coming by after church and that sort of thing and before he got started his microphone, never got any electricity to it for a good while, and so uh, he was going to talk with a, one of those bullhorns, and when I looked around, besides weapons, there were a number of people with bullhorns, and I mean, from the get-go, they just drowned him out. He never got to talk about anything. He's a nice guy, and part of the session was going to be us all getting together for a common discussion and not have a situation like in Oregon. And they started circling up and getting closer and closer and pushing and getting right in his face. And, you know, we just stood it out for a long time. I, and nobody had a mask on on their side. So you could wow. distinguish our side because we all had masks on. And I had a sign that said, uh, nobody is above the law. And I'm not sure, you know, they thought realized what we sat out was thinking on, you know. But there were no police presence at all, or at least that was vis- visible. And it got worse and worse. And finally, it was like a charge in the stage. So Hank and his group were packing up and fixing to leave. And they persisted. And there's a picture. There was a, a film on it that got on Facebook. And his campaign manager got all beat up by three or four guys. And Mm. my concern was some of the elderly, I'm pretty elderly myself, and getting them out of the area into a safe place. And I mean, these guys persisted and there wasn't any hesitation and they were all organized, ready not to do anything but give grief. And I don't know if it was a Gomer militia or where they came from or how it got organized. But there were a blend of camouflage and biker vests and, you know, but I, I tell you, I've been in, in the area since 85 and I've never seen anything like this. I've camped out in Crawford and was messing with W and nothing like this. I've protested in, in Dallas and Austin and I've never seen anything like this in Texas, Tom. But yeah. it, finally, when people started getting bloody and somebody called the police, they came up and it cal- started to calm down. But I think all of us are rattled, and I'm not sure anybody's going to come to listen to a Democratic candidate. You know, that's what bothers me. And, I, and the rattle. This people, is how the brown shirts
1: know, did it in Munich back in the 1920s. I mean, this was. This is literally, this is exactly, you know, shouting down competing candidates, threatening them, physically beating up their supporters, people who opposed Hitler. In the 1920s, this is before he was chancellor, before he had any political power. As he was rising to power, these volunteer militias would come in and beat the crap out of people. And Jesus, David, this is amazing.
2: This is a town of about 100,000 people. And uh, Cornyn and Cruz have offices there. But, uh, you know, this just stunk to high heaven that Gomer had a sign in this. And, you know, I don't know how to handle this. So I know a lot of people are still stirred up like I am. And some that got punched, uh, men and women, are trying to do some things about it. But it seems like the local media kind of set this up or Gomer influenced the media, I don't know. I don't want to talk like a conspiracy theory, but it was way too organized. You could tell that these guys there were there early and they weren't gonna listen or let us talk about anything. So
1: So clearly they don't believe in democracy or a democratic process or a political process for that matter, they just believe in force. It's mind boggling. David, will you keep us up to date? I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Will you keep us up to I date?
7: Appreciate you Tom.
1: Okay. Thanks a lot, David. Robbie in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Robbie, you were in the demonstrations this weekend?
7: Yeah. And every day for the last two months. <laughs> I just Tell wanted, yeah, I wanted to talk about the gas. One of the callers was describing their perspective down there. I wanted to say last week I got hit with gas pretty hard. I wasn't suited up properly for it. And my lymph nodes swelled up really bad. My neck was stiff. It's really nasty stuff. And so I just wanted to share, I can't find, I couldn't find anything. I was looking online for stuff that you can do after exposure. You can, I've only been able to find things for when you're exposed to it, you know, but um, I wanted to tell people if they're experiencing what I experienced, that activated charcoal and the niacin with the flush is, I found, it took the swelling down in my lymph nodes within a day, but that oh, seems great. to be getting out a lot of the. I would say drink stuff. a yeah. hell of a lot of water too, Robbie. I mean, you know, that just, oh, just absolutely flush, yeah. flush stuff out of your body. Yeah, when you take activated charcoal and niacin, water is definitely a huge part of that too. So I just wanted to share those two things, but also the CS gas that they're using is expired. A lot of people are going around and they're collecting the spent canisters and they're looking at it and they're expired by months, maybe years, some of it, which they're finding out as the CS gas is, turns into something, I think it's like cyanide. It turns into something different when it's old, which mm. there's also new video. So thankfully we had our court rule that journalists cannot be targeted. So now they're able to film after the feds. It's crazy. They'll just lob like 30 or I don't know. I don't know how many. They'll just lob all those tear gas canisters. There was a tornado in the street. but Not a tornado, but, you know, like a dust devil. Mm. <laughs> there was a dust devil of tear gas in the street that I saw the other night. And also, when you go down to the Justice Center, that those whole blocks, when cars drive by, it kicks it up. So when you get to the Justice Center, you do want to wear long sleeve clothes, a mask of some sort but yeah it's weird so these feds were actually going through and collecting certain canisters that they didn't want us to see so that's also some concern there but yeah be safe when you go down there uh, yeah. shout out to mom yeah, you too robbie shout out to mom yeah. thank you
1: okay thanks robbie good to hear from you you're listening to
2: tom hartman visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives
1: What's it going to take for Americans to wake up to the fact that what we're looking at is absolute authoritarianism, it's tyranny, literally. Cassandra in Camas, Washington. Hey, Cassandra, what's on your mind today?
8: Good morning. Very quickly, two things. One, I would like to let you guys know that I live in the orchards in Vancouver, Washington. I work in Camas. Anyway, on Saturday, I was putting up air conditioner into the window knowing that Sunday we're going to have a heat wave. Here we go. My son and I are out doing this. And suddenly he goes, Mom, look. And I turn around and there is a camouflage, what looks like military jeep with the sides taken off and guys in full body armor with automatic guns and they are going down our street. Now our street is totally suburbs and they're going very slowly and they are looking like they are there to make their presence felt. It's 1230 in the afternoon on a Saturday. Why are they on our streets? We are nowhere near anything. They should be militarily. This was not military. <laughs> they didn't have. How army do you know this wasn't this wasn't just that. a
1: bunch of wannabe soldiers, you know, a bunch of, exactly. uh, of right wing yahoos.
8: Exactly. That's the point. Who knows what this is bringing out and bringing on? Yes, that's very frightening when people feel that they have the right to go down your street in full military, you know, camouflage-looking type outfits with automatic weaponry. I just sat there with my mouth open. I've lived there 14 years, never seen anything like it. What the hell? Sorry, probably shouldn't say that on radio. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um, You can say that word. uh, Okay, so it was just dumbfounding. Now, the other thing I wanted to really call in initially to say was... I'm an older single parent with a son who has a lot of physical problems. He's battling going deaf at the moment. He has five different things that are frankly very frightening to deal with. He has a compromised immune system. Okay. So I feel that I cannot because he's, I'm his only resource in life. I cannot go and put myself out on the protest line. But there are other ways to protest, and that's my point. So what I've done is protesting is you make people hear your voice. You, you have them see you. We've had the rallies in Vancouver where they had the cars because of COVID where everybody did. Well, why not pepper your car now? That's what I do. I put on signs. I put on stickers and everything I can, anything from capitalism and racism is killing us all black lives matter sticker children aren't guinea pigs don't open schools whatever you know find your your thing that you need to protest but let it be heard let it be seen all the time so that this is in their face that's my thought on you, you know
1: there's a way you to haven't had anybody voice, try to run you off the road or anything
8: I have had some very interesting responses, oddly enough. I go to everywhere with, you know, whether I'm going to the grocery store or wherever I'm going, my car goes with me when I go to work because I do go to work. I haven't had anyone honk at me, try to run me off the road. I've had people stop when it's parked and look at the stickers and read them. I've had a couple of older gentlemen comment that they, you know it's about time somebody said something and they thanked me for it. So you can actually wow. get people to see it and and understand and without, you know, them feeling threatened.
1: Right. Yeah. It's remarkable. Anyway. Cassandra, Thank thanks you. thanks for the call and uh, thanks for your activism. <laughs> Nine years before the oligarchs of the South declared war against the North because they wanted to preserve slavery. In fact, they wanted to impose slavery in the North. Uh, Many of these guys that these monuments have been built to just came right out and said it. Uh, Nine years before that began, Frederick Douglass gave a speech saying, what to the slave is the 4th of July? a good and important question. It continues to be a question because slavery is still legal in the United States. The 13th Amendment said that slavery can only exist under the color of law. If somebody is, is charged or convicted of a crime, then they can be held as a slave. And it's still going on in the United States. In fact, it's the main reason why we have more prisoners than any other country in the world, free labor. And then on top of that, we find that the police departments that get more 1033 equipment, they kill more people. Check it out at tomhartman.com. Michael in Bronx, New York. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind? Hi,
5: Tom. And I just wanted to add to your list of questionable, or should we say, Trump schemes that's going on, especially with this so called federal police. Just because they're in some kind of combat uniform with a patch saying "police" on their chest doesn't mean Billy squat to me that they're actual federal officials. Because we all know that in case history, we've had criminals and terrorists impersonate law enforcement to entrap and manipulate their victims, targets, hostages—you name it—and then given that, yeah, Trump, but they're but they're not. The people coming
1: out of the federal building in Washington, D.C. are not pretending to be federal officers. Um, That's not the problem. The the problem is that they're concealing their identity. And one of them groped this woman, grabbed her breast, and put his hand up underneath her skirt and groped her while she was in custody. This 37-year-old mother of a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old. Really? And we don't know who he is, so he can't be held accountable? When people can't be held accountable... Their behavior changes. You can see this with uh, Twitter, for example, where people can be anonymous. It's not a good or healthy thing. Deborah in Denver. Hey, Deborah, what's up?
3: Hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. I'm watching on YouTube. Sure. My husband and I, we just finished watching Gandhi. And mm. Gandhi studied Jesus, and he led his people to protest peacefully. And... I think that the protesters should, I mean, this is just my opinion, but I think that they should protest by sitting down and singing Amazing Grace and Hallelujah, and they're peacefully protesting because then there's no doubt and no question that there's something else going on. And anybody else that's standing up and trying to cause trouble, then they obviously know that that's not part of the Peaceful protest movement. So that's all I have to yeah, say. I, I don't Thanks disagree
1: with you, Deborah. but this is not a movement that has a centralized leadership. It's not a movement that has anybody who can say, here's how we're going to do it. And there are all kinds of competing factions, both on the left and on the right, mm-hmm. who are inserting themselves into this. And right. uh, it's very troubling. But your point is well taken. And thank you for calling and making it. Bob in Fresno. Hey, Bob, what's up?
4: Hey, Tom, thank you for taking my call. And I really appreciate what you're doing. I had a couple of questions or points to make in terms of our current protests you see the climate crisis blm the economic disparity state violence how can we create a broader movement to join all these movements together and given that the police are so aggressive and violent can we look at other tactics and take a break from the police because i've been in so many demos where you get provoked and i know how it happens And people get angry, and they do get throw stuff back, and it's you know it plays kind of plays into their hands. I do admire the people in the streets. I've done it myself, but can't we look at super boycotts, targeted boycotts, strikes, rent strikes, mortgage strikes? I I don't think
1: so. I mean, you know, you've got like Goya, you know, the president of Goya Foods, which makes principally kind of uh, Mexican food, Mexican products, or you know, food types, as in Mexican restaurant kinds of food. And, and you know he publicly supported Trump and there are parts of the country now where goya products are still stacking up on the shelves there's other parts of the country where people are buying more of it i mean you know Trump put goya products all over the resolute desk in the white house which is a violation of the law and Ivanka got pictured with a can of goya so you know whatever kind of economic boycott you try to do their response is going to be to promote that company and those products all of this is, only serves one purpose, and that's the tear America apart. Donald Trump has made the calculation that if he can destroy this country, if he can tear us apart, if he can make us hate each other and fear each other, then he can prevail, he can stay in office, and he can avoid going to jail next year. That's the bottom line. I believe that's the bottom line from this point of view. And he can continue making millions of dollars a year off being president. Defending America from the weapons of mass deception. Tom Hartman here with you. We'll be back with your calls. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Revolution of Values by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. The subtitle, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. This is from the introduction titled Moral Clarity and the Fog of War. Since the late 1970s in America, political operatives have invested money and energy in framing the cultural concern of conservative white Christians as the moral issues in our public life. This framing was the explicit agenda of many of the organizations that built a religious right, but it has become commonplace across political and religious divides in America's public square. Whether you agree with them or not, conservative white evangelicals serve as the spokespersons for morality on the evening news. This was not always the case. Just half a century ago, the most famous religious leader in America was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In the context of the civil and human rights movement of the 1960s, voting rights, equal protection under the law, economic justice, peace, and the environment were widely recognized as moral issues. Americans from different racial and religious groups certainly did not agree on how to address these issues, but they were consistently addressed as moral issues. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in the 1980s and the 1990s, during the heyday of the Moral Majority Movement and the emergence of the Christian Coalition, both of which mobilized conservative white evangelicals to join the Republican Party and hold on to quote, traditional values. In that context, I learned to understand myself as a Christian at war with the dominant culture. Anxious that our way of life was passing away as the world around us became more diverse, my white evangelical culture taught me to turn to the Bible for solace and direction. As in any battle, our leaders argued about strategy. Should we seek political power to influence legislation or try to influence popular culture? Should we engage more in public life or retreat to spaces where we could avoid the culture's corrupting influence? Should we attempt to use culture, try to change culture, or even build a counterculture? These questions animated a lively debate within white evangelicalism for decades. But amidst the back and forth about strategy and tactics, most people came to agree that Americans were, in fact, at war. James Davison Hunter, a sociologist attuned to the ways elites and institutions were shaping public conversations in the late 20th century, named the phenomena in his 1994 book, Culture Wars, quote, America is in the midst of a culture war that has had and will continue to have reverberations not only within public life, but within the lives of ordinary Americans everywhere, end quote describing the institutions that had lined up across from one another in american public life hunter noted the historic divisions in the nation had shifted religious people no longer divided themselves along the denominational lines that had shaped public engagement for most of american history increasingly hunter observed americans saw themselves on one side or the other of a war between traditional morality and progressive values this wasn't just about left versus right in politics though the culture wars inevitably shaped where people stood with regard to partisan issues. The divide between orthodoxy and progressivism was more fundamental, Hunter argued. People on each side increasingly understood their way of seeing the world as fundamentally incompatible with their enemies across the battle line. In the realignment that Hunter described, Americans who looked to the Bible for moral authority were asked to line up against progressive values and policy proposals that sought to expand rights and alleviate poverty. In the name of defending traditional morality and a biblical worldview, I was taught to fight against policy proposals that were advocated by marginalized and vulnerable sisters and brothers who were crying out for justice in public life. On the front lines of the culture war, many who had committed to follow Jesus as Lord realized we had been deployed to fight against the people through whom Jesus promised to be present in Matthew 25. How did white Christian nationalists rest America's public moral narrative away from the civil rights movement, and persuade many people of faith to defend white cultural values in the name of Jesus? This question has haunted me since. As a young man, on my way out of the religious right, I met black Christians who taught me another way of following Jesus in public. Twenty years later, after the election of Donald Trump, I wrote, reconstructing the gospel, finding freedom from slaveholder religion, to say what I had learned from the black-led freedom movement about how white identity politics distorted American Christianity's understanding of everything from personal salvation to shared public witness. But as I taught that long history in churches and seminaries across the country, I quickly realized that slaveholder religion's more recent impact on American public life was the pressing concern, not only for Christians struggling to understand public witness, but also for the wider American public that simply could not comprehend how white Christians who claimed to be concerned about morality could stand by a president who was so obviously and egregiously immoral. I wrote this book both for those who share my experience in white Christian institutions and for the many who do not, because the false moral narrative of the tradition I was raised in has impacted everyone caught up in the American story. Revolution of Values is a search for clarity on behalf of a people who lost our way in the midst of the culture wars. Such confusion was not uncommon in the fog of war, veterans remind us. A sensitive and discerning judgment is called for, Karl von Clausewitz writes in his famous treatise on war, a skilled intelligence to send out the truth. My methodology has been to send out the truth of what happened to faith in public life by examining the political and economic interests that invested in winning the political allegiance of white evangelicals in the late 20th century. The book, Revolution of Values, Mike in San Francisco. Hey, Mike, what's up?
2: Hey, listen, I had a million things to say. I'll keep it quick. One point that I'd like to make, because I'm out there demonstrating every day in Oakland. Income inequality is a huge problem. You were talking about thievery and all that. I know because I pay 800 a week in taxes. Anyway, listen, until these protests go from the streets of Portland and the streets of Oakland to the gated communities where these rich people live, Okay. until we start showing up there, I don't think we're going to have an impact because they don't see homeless people. They don't see it when they go home to their nice, fancy houses. I say we show up in those gated communities and start a little. Uh, Mike, I
1: I get what you're saying and (laughs) the reality and economics of it all, you know, arguably support what you're saying. But look at what happened in Missouri. When a group of protesters were trying to march through or did march through a gated community to get to the home of, I don't recall if it was the mayor or the governor or whoever it was, but they were trying to bring a protest to this person's home. And you had that couple who got, you know, who owned this McMansion and they walked out with, he had an assault rifle, she had a pistol. You know, the local police arrested them for pointing guns at, at peaceful pro, unarmed protesters, which is assault. It's against the law. But now the governor is saying sure. he's going to issue a pardon if they get prosecuted
2: well, or, you know,
1: we can't. I mean, they'll just it's just we another can't thing that, we, can't,
8: we can't let
2: that intimidate us, Tom. Listen, I'll tell you what. Guns yeah. don't scare me. I'm from Oakland. OK, I'll tell you what. We show up 100,000 strong and they won't be able to do nothing.
1: Yeah, Mike, thank you. An excellent uh, punctuation mark for today's program we'll be back tomorrow same time same place in the meantime don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport you have to actively engage democracy or it ceases to be democracy we've got to save this republic from these fascist crazies so get out there get active tag you're it we'll see you tomorrow uh, tell your friends how to find good progressive media as well have a great afternoon be good to yourself and in you.